Hello everyone. Welcome to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana and in this episode, we are going to present to you part one of our 10-part series, 101 movies from the 1990s that you need to watch. That's right. This is going to be the entire first episode. Think of this as an extended, extended preview. Jason and I are incredibly proud of the work that we put into this series. All told, it's more than 20 hours long, and it is a Patreon-exclusive series, so if you like what you hear in this episode and you want to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash howwasthismovie. There's also a link in this episode's show notes. Here it is, episode one of 101 movies from the 1990s that you need to watch, and keep in mind, as of releasing this episode, Jason and I have already begun our second in-depth series, 101 Movies from the 2000s that you need to watch, where we'll be recommending 101 films from the year 2000 through 2009. So I hope you enjoy this episode and look forward to talking to you all soon. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, welcome to the first episode of our Patreon-exclusive series, 101 Movies from the 1990s that we strongly recommend. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Dana Buckler, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Waters. Good evening to you, Jason. How hey, are you? I am just, I'm ex- so excited to kick this off. This is this is going to be a great one. This <laughs> it is, really is. Let me, let me first start by saying where this idea came from. Okay. So, as you know, I host a weekly dinner and a movie event at a restaurant in Ocala, Florida. I have heard of it. You've heard of it, yes. Yeah, uh, one of these days I'll go and visit. You know, uh, that's a little tongue-in-cheek reference because I think you have been to more of them than anyone else. Yep. And I've done 125 of them. Oh, man, really? Okay. Now, where this idea comes from is, you know, when I'm setting up the room, setting up the projector, you know, the, there's some employees of the restaurant that come in and they're very friendly and, yeah. hey, Dana, what are you showing today? Right. Now... I'm sad to report that in most cases, 80% of the staff that uh, work at the restaurant, when I tell them what I'm showing, for example, you know, I don't want to date this, but for example, one of the more recent ones I showed was Stand By Me from 1986. Yep. Well, you'd be surprised, number one, how many people had not seen it, but number two, how many people had never even heard of this oh, movie? I, I, I'm not shocked because as I was telling you, I had my notebook open where I was writing notes down, you know, hey, let's, I want to make sure I mention this. There are people that walk by like, oh, you got a journal there, huh? What is, what, what, what movie is that? I've never heard of it. Really? This one, an Oscar. You've never heard of this? It's bizarre to me because growing up and, and I, I, you know what, I'm not even going to try to theorize as to why, you know, the younger generation is not embracing the past as much as we did because growing up there were movies right seminal movies that were 20 30 years older than when i was born i sought them out and yeah and i continue to to to, to seek them out and you know instead of being discouraged about the lack of you know sort of yearning to watch older films i thought why don't we turn this into something a little bit different why don't we turn this into well, here's 101 movies from the 1990s, which I think is one of the greatest decades in cinema. So here's yes. here's some movies to watch and, and hopefully get some enjoyment out of. Yeah. No, and not just that, but as, use this as a primer to go back into the 80s and 70s because, you know, us old-ass 40-year-old men, 
that's the you know that's akin to these kids looking into the early 2000s exactly so i always looked into the 70s the 60s the 50s you look for the trademarks the styles the the overall themes i mean movies don't speak to a certain person or time frame they speak to everyone you've got to be able to like good movies do ne- never go out of style that's correct. And I mean, yeah. on the day we're recording this, this morning, I just put E.T. on for no reason other than <laughs> I love that movie. And the last 30 minutes of that film, I had a smile on my face ear to ear. Yeah. And that movie is 40 years old. Yeah. So there, I'm sure there's a whole generation that has never seen that. But we're not talking about the 80s yet. <laughs> yet. All right. This is we're kicking things off with the 90s. So there, the rules for this were really kind of kind of simple. Yes. Now, what we decided to do was we are not doing the definitive. These are the 101 greatest movies to come out of the 1990s. Although I think it's safe to say that if we were going to do that list, several of these entries would make that list. Absolutely. Yep. But I will say that this is not even though we're going to start at number 101. Don't look at this as a ranking system. This is yeah, absolutely not ranking. This is just your general everything came in. This is what we wanted to talk about this week. We just we just compiled a list and it's like, well, we have to put these in some type of order. Yep. And the order is, well, this is what we're prepared to talk about on yeah. this episode. And some of it was like, I, hey, actually, I just watched this movie two weeks ago. I, you know, I really think it, it deserves to be on the list. Yeah, it definitely deserves to yep. be talked about. And the other thing that I wanted to point out is the only other rule or guideline that I wanted to introduce was it's okay for a sequel to be on this list. I, I want us to stick to as many original stories as possible, but there are a couple definitive sequels that came out in the 1990s, yep. and, and they're going to be covered on this one. But it couldn't be something that was planned. Right. Okay. So it, it it's not like, and I'm just going to use Marvel just as an example. You know, like you look at the phases of Marvel. Every time you watch, even when you watched Iron Man, the first Marvel movie, that was part of a planned, you know, set of movies. Yes. So a sequel is acceptable if the original film never intended to have a sequel. Right. That's that's kind of the loose. So so for that, I'm sorry to our Star Wars fanatics, but. <laughs> Star Wars episode Star Wars one, not on the, list. the Phantom Menace is not going to be on our list of 101 movies that we recommend. Yeah, but Jason, there's a there's a lot of movies to talk about. There's a lot of things to cover. The 1990s could not have produced more hits. Like we, this could have easily have been 200 best movies yeah, yeah, of absolutely. the 90s. And there might be another. There, yeah, there could yeah. conceivably be a, another 101. Yeah, movies we could have the 90s honorable mentions out the wazoo. But this is. I just. Yeah, I want to say. For me, why I wanted to start with the 1990s, I was a teenager in the 1990s. I like to say I'm a child of the 80s, but I was a teenager of the 90s. And and for me, my film-going experience, my movie theater-going experience ramped up into high gear by the time I was a teenager in high school. And I turned 21 in 1999. So there was that from 16 to 21 where I was consuming as much as possible in the theater. And one of the things that I'm very nostalgic for and that I, you know, I dearly, dearly miss is every Friday going to the movies and seeing something I'd never seen before. Yep. And that is something that I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say we, we just don't get anymore. Well, and I'll, what I'll say about the 90s, too, is it ushered in this 
complete era of auteur filmmakers that could not have done what they did in the 80s without the the mega movies of the 80s and what was planned in the 90s. All these new production companies, I mean, Miramax, that came in and there were these people who looked at it and went, this guy could could do it. I believe in this film. And they gave so many more chances to people than had ever been available before. The rise of the independent film really happened. You know, the Sundance yes, phenomenon absolutely. happened. It kicks off in 89 with Sex, Lies, and Videotapes, but really gets going with your Reservoir Dogs, your Clerks, yes. you know, and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, your big movie studios, they create their own independent offshoots, yeah. which is like, which the, 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 Hypocrisy, yeah. the irony in that is not I, lost on any of no. us. Okay. Even Zilla, Warner Independent, <laughs> Paramount Vantage. Yeah. It's like, get the, you know, and, 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 you know, obviously the nineties, a lot of the success, de- you know, has to do with, with, with Miramax's. And I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of movies that, that were Miramax produced or, yep. or distributed, but that's as far as we're going to go. And yeah, in, the overall theme is not, you yeah, know, lost it, on us. But. So, so Jason, no time like the present. Coming in at number 101 is the first movie on your list. Yeah, and arguably probably the best movie of the 1990s. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Argu- All right. I'm sure someone will argue for it. Yeah. Um, but it was 1991's Point Break. Point Break. All right. So the Wikipedia quick plot synopsis is yes. Point Break is a 1991 American action crime film directed by Catherine Bigelow and written by W. Peter Lift. It stars Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves, Lori Petty, and Gary Busey. The film's title refers to the surfing term Point Break, where a wave breaks as it hits a point of land jutting out from the coastline. The film features Reeves as an undercover FBI agent who is tasked with investigating the identities of a group of bank robbers while he develops a complex relationship with the group's leader, played by Patrick Swayze. Why did you pick this one for 101? So, again, not just... Number 101, but somewhere in the 90s. The reason I picked this one is that this is a cultural phenomenon. This establishes both Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze as action heroes, something that both of them follow after this. It's not – I don't want to, to demean anyone here. It's not a great movie. It's a very good movie. It has a very cultural significance to overall film and to the American experience. I feel like if you don't have Keanu Reeves or Patrick Swayze in this movie, the both of them together, this movie completely falls apart. And it is a bland, just overall entry into what's an early 90s action cinema movie. This the guy? Yeah. Okay. I know. This is where you tell me all about how locals rule and yuppie insects like me shouldn't be surfing the break and all that, right? (laughs) Nope. That would be a waste of time. (laughs) We're just gonna fuck you up. Back off, war child, seriously. Thank you. 
stay out of this, Bodie. What's your name? Bunker. Bunker. Listen, Bunker. I'm actually really glad you found me. Yeah? Why? Hey! It's interesting because it, 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 we look at this time period. So it's 1991, okay? Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. This is a big movie for both of them. So really big for Keanu Reeves. All right. Prior to this, his two most notable appearances are Parenthood 1989 and the same year, uh, Bill and Ted's. Bill and Ted's. Excellent adventure. Yep. For Patrick Swayze, the 80s are, are a little different. They're better. Right? Yeah. So they're better. So he's uh, he's going to be in um, ah, The outside. Red, okay. The Red Outsiders, Dawn. Red Dawn. Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse, right, yeah. which which is being remade now. I know. Can we just heard? Can, can we just say that that's that's just Jake Gyllenhaal? Jake Gyllenhaal. What, what uh, are we doing? Um, but I will say this: like I have said, that Roadhouse represents the last bastion of the 1980s action movie. Because you look true. at you look at Patrick Swayze's character of of Dalton. Okay, he is rough. He's tough. You know, he's the badass. You know, he's he's the quintessential 80s action guy. Yep. Flash forward two years to 1991's Point Break. And then you have. He's this inner philosophical boat. He's Bodhi, he, this Buddhist bank robber. <laughs> he becomes his character becomes and there's going to be a theme through a lot of the movies that we talk about. OK, but he, he is an antihero. The true definition of yes. 19, what, what made the 1970s so special is that, you know, our lead characters and in some cases are not good people. All right. They're in some cases, in some cases, they're horrible people. Now, his character, Bodie, in this film is a very likable, very charismatic guy, but he's a bad guy. He, he is. He robs banks. Yes. He hurts people, you know, uh, but he does it to to continue the inner journey of himself and the people he surrounds himself with of the surfing culture that provides them with this inner peace and radiates to the people around him. So in his mind, he's not committing a crime. He's robbing a bank in 90 seconds or less. No one's getting hurt. He's taking he's not going in and saying, I want everything you've got in the vault. He robs from the tellers, and they're out of there in 90 seconds. It's a victimless crime the way he views it. The way he views it, absolutely. Yes. And then you have Keanu Reeves, who, from from what I understand, like the studio, Catherine Bigelow wanted him. Studio yep. was like, nope, he, he's not bankable. He's not a bankable star, but she stuck to her guns. Now, it didn't hurt that she was involved with James Cameron at the time. Right. And so... As uh, as my friend Jim Hempel, writer director, pointed out, because this movie made our list of the top ten practical action films out there, he made the list that he made the point that uh, Cameron, because of his where his stature was at this time, he he had done Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss. He was working on Terminator Two at the time. Uh, he was able to kind of get Catherine Bigelow some resources that she may not have been yeah. able to, to get. And Just, she was coming off of Blue Steel like, yeah, which, right before. Excellent film. Great film. Excellent film. The action scenes in this film are phenomenal. The surfing scenes are phenomenal. The stunts, the stunt work is good. Overall, it's a great movie. Gary Busey's terrific in this movie. What, maybe, I don't want to say one of his last few great movies, but I mean, he, does a, he does an amazing job in this. He does. He does. I, I do want to say, I do want to ask the question of you. Um, I know we're talking about the 90s, but did you ever sit down and watch the 2015 remake? Of, I did. 
Can I tell you something? Sure. Not a horrible movie. It's not. Um, the stunt work and it's phenomenal. That, that entire wingsuit scene, that's yeah. all real. They really yeah. did that. The, um, the, I appreciated the, the, the best thing I can say about that movie is I appreciated that they did not remake Point Break. They, they made it their own based on Point Break. So it was not a shot for shot remake. I didn't, I, I actually liked that movie. Okay. Not, not, I, I do not view it as a remake of Point Break. I view it as a standalone film. No, a, it's a standalone film that I'm sure the studio made them slap the title, Point Break, <laughs> change the character's name. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, Point Break was such a influential film that 10 years later, they're going to completely rip off the entire plot of this movie and, and package it into a film called The Fast and the Furious, yes. which I identified that while watching it in the theater for the first time. And that's why I have been the Fast and Furious franchise has been sullied for me for the entire the entire run. Yep. And there's only, you know, 10, 12 of those now. Yeah. No, 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 no. Offshoots. I yep. know they, they put a Pontiac Fiero in space. I mean, <laughs> by the ninth one, they're putting they're putting they're putting ludicrous in space. You know, <laughs> um, I will say this. uh They actually you think about 1991. You know, we've we've talked about budgets on films before the budget on this one. $24 million. It's insane. It's insane for early 1991. And it's all um, practical. That's the thing. They're doing some amazing stuff with this. If you look at the, the shots, most of these are at the beach. Like, where did the money must have been spent on production and I mean, on salaries, but it ended up grossing almost $84 million. And that's, that's fantastic. And by yeah. the way, back then, that's a hit. That it really is. That's a hit. Like yeah. that's a studio. And that's that's before it goes to video. Yeah. No. So so, so a studio love. That's that's four times basically almost four times your investment. Yeah. And you're right. Once it hits the ancillary market, video, all that stuff, it's it's doing great. One more thing um, about this film that I want to point out is this Pat. You know Patrick Swayze's having a great time in this film. He does a lot of his own skydiving in this movie. There yeah. is a scene where you see him holding on the outside of a plane and the camera goes right up to him and he just lets go and you just see him drop. And yeah. that and I, I did some background and he I mean, there's some of it wasn't real, but yeah, he's I, doing a lot of his a own lot of that stunts. Was, yeah, they said like, you know, ten feet off the ground with the you know, fans going, yeah. but I read somewhere that he did over fifty jumps himself. Yeah. And having skydive once <laughs> That was enough for me. It's incredible. If he's doing it 50 times in that production period of 60 to 90 days, like that's that's sick. Absolutely. So Point Break, obviously, we're, it's on our list of movies we recommend. So we don't have to go, well, we certainly recommend this movie. <laughs> but that's a that's a great one to start off with. So yes. good, good pick. All right. So moving on to number 100 on our list, um, a movie that I saw twice in the theater. Okay. A film that I rewatched yesterday in preparation for this conversation and one that i think the case could be made that it might be for the lead star it might be his last great mm. action movie and where i'm talking about um a movie that's directed by a name that we've already come up with i'll cut right to the chase i'm talking about 1994's true lies written and directed by james cameron starring arnold schwarzenegger and it goes on to say here that 
True Lies is a 1994 American spy action comedy written and directed by James Cameron. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Tom Arnold, with cameos by Bill Paxton, Charlton Heston, and Elijah Dushku. It's based on the 1991 French comedy Le Total. The film follows U.S. government agent Harry Tasker, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who struggles to balance his double life as a spy with his family duties. Let's talk about, I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a, an, another movie. Well, there's two more movies from the 1990s that James Cameron did that uh, I can guarantee are going to make the list. So every, <laughs> yeah. everything James Cameron has done is making, is making, it's, our, it's, making be our list. Yep. So this is going to be his follow-up to Terminator 2, which was the highest grossing film of 1991. It's released by 20th Century Fox. They basically tell Cameron, do whatever you want. By the way, Terminator 2, most expensive film ever made. True Lies becomes the most expensive film ever made. (laughs) When three years later, Cameron is again going to make the most expensive film ever made. (laughs) And when you're looking at a film like this that had a reported budget of $100 which was massive. Let's talk about this. Okay. You just mentioned Point Break, $25 million budget. Cameron's going to step in and say, oh, I, ah, hold my beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got you there. Where do you begin on this film? All right. It's it's really a tale of three movies. Okay. So okay. the first act of the film is we're learning all about what Harry does and him and Gil, who plays by Tom. Played I by Tom love Arnold, Tom Arnold in this. Who, so great. It, it, it has to be said <laughs> that Tom Arnold's reputation up until this point was not good. No, no. He, he was married to Roseanne Arnold. He, you know, he's a very good writer. He, I mean, he he wrote. He was one of the lead writers on the Roseanne Show. Yeah. Um. So don't get me wrong. He's a very talented person, but his reputation was not Just, good. No, and he he plays this so self deprecating. The the humor that he's got in this, it is the comic relief that. Is not over the top, but is just needed. It just, it, he's so funny in this. Hey, hold it! Fucker! What's going on, man? Sick or something? Looks like that gun kicked. It's hell. It's hell. It's Helen. Helen has something to do with Helen, I'm guessing. Helen. Helen. Helen? Helen is having an affair. Welcome to the club, man. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody thinks it can happen to them the first time, buddy. Same exact thing happened to his wife number two, remember? I had no idea nothing's going on, right? I come home one day and the house is completely empty. And I mean completely empty. She even took the ice cube trays out of the freezer. What kind of a sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer? Look, Helen. Hey, Harry. Hey, listen, Helen still loves you. You know, she just wants to bang this guy for a while, you know? It's nothing serious. You'll get used to it soon. Stop cheering me up! And he's so likable. Yes. And that's the thing is that you honestly want to see a movie with just him. Like, if you're going to do a sequel to True Lies... Make it the further adventures of Gil. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, only James Cameron can make a comedy which features some of the best action sequences ever shot on film. Oh my gosh! And and there are some out there that will say that the comedy is forced in this one. It's obviously has some of it hasn't aged well. I'm laughing my ass off 
by myself watching this movie yesterday. Well, I, and and here's the other thing too. Outside of the the laughter of it, of how funny this is, and I I will have to I'll apologize if if she's listening. I never thought Jamie Lee Curtis was sexy before watching this movie. After seeing her scene in this movie, I was like, oh my fucking God, she is a goddess. He, uh, the transformation, the the transformation that her character goes through is so believable. She plays Helen Tasker. She's a legal secretary. Uh, just, I mean, Spoilers for all that. Maybe we don't want to spoil these movies because we're recommending no, them. Yeah, spoil them because you, if you have not seen Jamie Lee Curtis in this role, you have to. No one's going to understand what you're saying until they get an hour and a half into this movie. Yeah. So she's like I said, she plays this. She's a wallflower. She's she's a legal secretary. Her in her mind, her husband is this very very boring computer salesman that yep. happens to have one of the greatest physiques in the world, but. That being said, you know, she ends up subsequently kind of getting into an affair with a... Because her husband's so boring. Because he's Arnold so boring. Schwarzenegger is so, so boring. He's so boring. And, you know, there are two plots going through this movie. The You have, you have Schwarzenegger and Arnold trying to figure out where the stolen nuclear warheads are going to end up. So you've got the first part of the movie is them trying to, you know, hunt down leads and following terrorists and you get some really awesome <laughs> action sequences. Like I love to tell everybody there is a scene in this movie where Tom Arnold and Arnold Schwarzenegger realize that they're being followed <laughs> by three terrorists and Arnold decides to get out of the car, walk into a bathroom at a mall. And if I told you that scene ends with a motorcycle jumping roof to roof and Arnold Schwarzenegger on a police horse yep. trying to do the same jump, you would not see how these thi- how how this scene would start in the bathroom of a of a mall and end up on this. But that's James Cameron. Yes. That's that's one plot line. The second plot line is you have, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, the bored housewife, gets into a mysterious, you know, relationship with a with a spy <laughs> played by Bill Paxton, who happens to be a used car salesman, who is must be uh, having the time of his life playing this role. And Bill Paxton comes from Aliens, comes with, from aliens with, yeah. with, with James Cameron. Like watching Bill Paxton, like, <laughs> so the, like the common complaint I've heard about this movie is that after that bombastic action sequence involving the motorcycle and the police horse that things drastically slow down well i think it becomes a second movie no it does yeah during this part during this portion like there's a good i I checked the time it's a good hour yeah uh this whole you know harry figure trying to figure out what's going on and it's it's fucking hilarious (laughs) it it really so it's it's action it's comedy it's romance it's drama i mean it it covers Every single genre in this movie. It gets to the point where, you know, Harry has, they figured out that Bill Paxton is, he's a phony. They don't let Helen know that he's a phony. They end up, you know, Harry's got this elaborate plan to recruit her and to have, she wants some adventure. He's going to show her some adventure. And she has to pretend to be a prostitute showing up at a high-end hotel in D.C. And this is where you see the transformation. Yes. Literally, because she she has to show up with this ridiculously awful dress. Yeah. And then just rips the sleeves off and just, it. Grabs the vase and, you know, know, slicks her hair back and just becomes this, like, you're like, 
Oh. And I, I'll admit, like I'm, I'm with you. Like I never would have seen that. No, I never would have seen that. And then they get kidnapped by the terrorists, and then it's all about. And then it's just on from oh, there. Yeah. And then again, I tell you this, everyone, if you haven't seen this, and you know the. The nuclear weapons have been stolen. They detonate a nuclear weapon in the Florida Keys. Uh, their daughter, Dana, gets kidnapped. And Harry has to hijack a Harrier, a Harrier jet. jet. <laughs> and there's, I mean, it's just, it's so, like, if you tell somebody the plot of this movie, they're going to be like, what are you talking yeah. about? But it all works. It works. It really does. It and all works. If you If you were to catch just, like, one or two scenes of it, you'd go... All right, come on. This is a made-for-TV movie. You watch the thing from from start to finish, and you go, I just had a really great experience. Watching this film made me so, like, like just James Cameron, why did you... You were on a roll, all right? You have 84 Terminator, 86 Aliens, 89 The Abyss, 91 terminator 2 94 true lies 97 titanic so there's two three-year gaps in between your movies then you take a 12 year break and do avatar and then you take a 13 year break (laughs) and to do avatar 2 my god could you have not given us a couple more true lies style movies well once when you make when you make you know well he makes the most two billion dollars on Avatar. Eh. It's not about the money. But well, I, it. And that's for him, it's no that's, longer about money. That's what I'm hoping to see. And you know, I've I've said before, I'm not. I wasn't happy with Avatar, but the money that he earned from that, I'm I'm looking forward to see what happens on Avatar too. I, I, the technological I, advances, what he's put into it. He probably. I mean. Do we even know how much money he's put into Avatar 2? He's putting his own money into it. So, you know. Billion dollars. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's incredible. So, officially, uh, the budget for True Lies is estimated to be between 100 and 120 million, which was record-breaking at the time. The movie made 378 million worldwide. Again, that's, those numbers may sound, you know, pedestrian by today's standards, but this is almost 30 years ago. Yeah. All right. This was a huge hit. And then something that you and I haven't discussed yet. The first two movies on this list, both of them were rated R. Yes. Rated R. All yeah. right. So moving on to the next movie on the list from nine, uh, the 99th pick. Also rated R. Rated. Go ahead, Jason. Was it really rated R? Oh, yeah. I did not realize that. Oh, yeah. What was it rated R for? Language? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess there were quite a few. Well, there's a scene. Well, I'll, I'll, there. I'll let you I'll let you announce the movie, and then I'll explain a couple scenes. That All right. So, yeah, this was um, 1992's My Cousin Vinny. Yes. Uh, Joe Pesci, Marissa Tomei, um, directed by Jonathan Lynn. And written by Dale Lawner. Okay. Um, who was a lawyer. Yes. Okay. And let me just say what it says here, okay? Two new, two young New Yorkers traveling through rural Alabama are arrested and put on trial for a murder they did not commit. And a cousin, Vinny Gambino, a lawyer who had only recently passed the bar exam after five <laughs> unsuccessful attempts, defends them. Now, it says much of the humor comes from the fish-out-of-water interaction between the 
brought the brash Italian American New Yorkers Vinny and his fiance Mona Lisa Vito, played by Marissa Tomei, who, like you said, won an Academy Award for this role, and the more reserved Southern townspeople. My cousin Vinny, uh, I put on my list of uh, when we did our top 10 comedies of all time, it was my number one, and it still is my number one movie. Yeah, I I don't know if I would call it my number one. Number one comedy. Number one comedy overall. But it it is definitely one of the best movies of the 90s. Yeah. Joe Pesci does such an amazing job. Marissa Tomei, like, you know, she won the Academy where she steals the show in this. The reason I love it is because, number one, it it holds – it holds the law true. Yes. So, and I've, you know, I've read so many things about what, you know, how the, the law legal, you know, how the legal arrangements are shown in this movie. And everyone says this is the truest legal representation of how a trial is handled overall. And you put this, apologies to Joe Pesci, buffoon into this situation and not just a buffoon, but someone from completely outside of the norm. So a New York lawyer in Alabama courtroom, like, go ahead, hilarity ensues from there. What I love about this, okay, there's so many things I love about this. Number one, this is an unconventional courtroom movie mm-hmm. yes. in, in a few senses. Number one, because if I was to ask you who the antagonist of this movie was, there's no answer to that. Yeah, because even, you know, like the director, Jonathan Lynn, the way he represents this small Alabama town. All right. Sure. There are some southern stereotypes that are that are in there, but they're not represented as being like total, complete idiots. No, like like they're they're like the judge, Fred Gwynn. He's 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 fantastic. The prosecutor. All right. He's great. Like they're, they're not bad people. So no. we're not we're not sitting there so angry uh, because, you know, Ralph Macchio and his buddy have been arrested for a crime. We know they didn't commit. We're watching this going. What's going on? How can they how can we win? You are yeah. you're a part of the the legal team. Yeah. Overall. And you're rooting with them to get past this. And Marissa Tomei pushes it forward and Joe Pesci pushes it forward. You You know, they're innocent. But when you listen to. The DA talk about, and it's played wonderfully by Lane Smith. He's a great character actor. Yes. You know, and they're talking about, you know, the people have seen him, you know, this, you know, green convertible, two guys matching their description and metallic mint green convertible. And and you're just like, you're like, I don't understand. Like, we know they didn't do it. Yes. And, and it's just, and watching, like you talk about the, the, the trial strategy, everything about it is so accurate. Yep. Is it possible the two defendants entered the store, picked 22 specific items off of the shelves, had the clerk take money, make change, then leave? Then two different men drive up in a similar... Don't shake your head. I'm not done yet. Wait till you hear the whole thing so you can understand this now. Two different men drive up in a similar-looking car, go in, shoot the clerk, rob him, and then leave? No. They didn't have enough time. Well, how much time was they in the store? Five minutes. Five minutes? Are you sure? Did you look at your watch? No. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. You testified earlier that the boys went into the store 
and you had just begun to make breakfast. You were just ready to eat, and you heard a gunshot. That's, That's right, right, I'm sorry. So obviously, it takes you five minutes to make breakfast. That's right. Right, so you knew that. Uh, Do you remember what you had? Eggs and grits. Eggs and grits. I like grits, too. How do you cook your grits? You like them regular, creamy, or al dente? Just regular, I guess. Regular. Instant grits? No self-respecting southerner uses instant grits. I take pride in my grits. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Were these magic grits? I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Uh, objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five minutes? Ignore the question. Know. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. I got no more use for this guy. That's one of the things. I mean, one of the things I just love about this film. And, you know, I was talking to a lawyer the other day and every time I talk to a lawyer, I'm always, you know, like just in a casual conversation, you know, I always bring this film up. And and one of the points they brought out to me that the only thing, the only thing that they can cite that is inaccurate when it comes to legal procedure in this film was the timetable for when they're arrested, when their preliminary hearing is, yeah, when it goes like, to trial. You know, they said they said, no, a, a murder trial uh, a first-degree murder trial where the death penalty is potentially on the table, this thing takes a couple years. Yeah. They said that was the only thing. But they said it's a movie. But is it Alabama? <laughs> but this is definitely a, a, an R-rated movie. There's that scene where where they're in the... Uh, when <laughs> There's a scene where when Real Macho, Ralph Macchio, William Gambini, they can never... Gambino, they can never pronounce his name <laughs> correctly, and Stanley Rothenstein... <laughs> It's Stein. <laughs> when they're in, when they first get, they get moved to the uh, the state prison because the local jail had been condemned. And there's that whole yeah. scene where the first time that uh, uh, Stan is introduced to Gambino, he thinks he's one of the prison guys, and he's just like, I, "What the fuck is your problem? Did I come here just to get jerked off?" Oh no, I'm not jerking you off. I'm not jerking anyone off. <laughs> that, that's got to be the only thing that could get this an no, R rating. No, Pesci says the F word all the time uh, in I guess this movie. So. It's such a fun movie. But I, I would guarantee you, like, if you put this against the Academy today, MPAA today, it'd be PG-13. Well, sadly, and one of the reasons why it's important for us to do this type of episode is we're, we're just never – we're not getting a movie like this right. in the theater. But, I mean, the, the best thing about this movie – one of the best things about this movie, Marissa Tomei wins the Academy Award for for playing – the probably one of the best comedic role a, a, a Brooklyn hairdresser who's also a mechanic, yeah, Mona Lisa Vito, <laughs> and just of the other people who were up that year, all just rigid British 
actresses beats all of them playing a Jane character from a Jane Austen story. You know, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 she she was up against people that were in uh, for Miss Maisel's Tea Room or whatever. Right. You know? It was it was Van- I mean Vanessa Redgrave, Miranda Richardson, and outside of that. Roger Ebert gave this a thumbs down. Yeah. Um, so many people shit on this movie. Owen Gleiberman said it was pure no brain bunk. Everyone just wrote this movie off and it was anyone who watched this not looking at it for a critical review loved it. I've never met anyone who saw this movie and just went, that was, that was, that was just pure garbage. Uh, for the dinner and the movies that I do. Uh, I do offer uh, oftentimes, you know, I'll have private groups that will want to book the experience. And I've actually done my cousin Vinny more, more times than not. Oh, really? Like that's the one people request the most. It's a great movie to watch with a crowd. Yeah. With a group. It's a great group movie. So, I mean, the movie was made for 11 million. It took in what? 64 million? 64 million. Rotten tomato score of 87%. And, you know, very rarely do I ever do the cinema score because that's, you know, it's always be whatever. Yeah. This was an A minus cinema score. Now, this movie did again sixty four million nineteen ninety one nineteen ninety two. That's that's thirty years ago. That's that's again that's the solid of, film. This was one of Marissa Tomei's first movies. This catapulted her into everything she did from there. Absolutely, and so, yeah. and I'm telling you, pound for pound, this is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen because it just, I mean. You like all of the characters. Yeah. That's the thing. You like them all. And I just. And say two Utes in front of anyone else. Yeah. And challenge them that they they don't know where it's from. This movie had crazy legs when it hit the home video market. This was one that everybody was talking about. And this this became a Buckler family annual tradition <laughs> when I would visit my parents. Like when I was still living, though, I was still a teenager. But even even up till like a few years ago, like. I would come visit and was like, well, I guess we're putting on my cousin Vinny. Yeah. It's such, it's such a great film. No. And, and every time me and my wife get into a fight, like if I'm even, you know, even close to winning, I just always go, no, the defense is wrong. <laughs> uh, I have to. We could spend a whole hour talking yeah, about could. this movie. Yeah, just yeah. when you start getting into the scene, like just I, I just want to real quickly <laughs> the scene when okay, so they Bill and Stan get arrested, and when they're in the police station, all right, and they they get to make that that first phone call, yeah, and, and just this just the scene where he's like, "Hello, Ma, Ma, yeah, no, not doing when Wazoo, it's in Beecham County, Alabama, Ma, not too good, Ma, we we've been arrested, no, Ma, Ma, first of all, we didn't do it." Like, murder, Ma. He goes, he heard, he heard his first voice. He goes, murder. <laughs> now, Ma, Ma, Ma. And then you hear Stan going, tell him what you think's going on. Tell him what you think's going on. Right, we think they're start, trying to set us up for patsies. Yeah, the clans here, they're inbred. They sleep with their sisters. It cuts to the, 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 the deputy just the looking deputy. at him. It's like that kind of, like that is. It's just, perfect. It sets the tone for the entire and, movie. Uh, Jonathan Lynn, the director of this, who did Clue. And distinguished gentleman got his law degree from Cambridge. Yeah, and, and so you've got a lawyer directing the film. And I want to say, gotta, you got to love this distinguished gentleman. Not sure if it makes our our list of one hundred and one, but I will say that watching that film, 
this was back when Eddie Murphy, Distinguished Gentleman, Ed Murphy's trying to do that resurgence where he's like boomerang, Distinguished yeah. Gentleman, all stuff. I rewatched Distinguished Gentleman about a, a year and a half ago, and it dawned on me that what this, what Distinguished Gentleman shares in common with my cousin Vinny is an accurate look at the, uh, how, how politics work in Washington. Yeah. And, and it, for that reason alone, I actually found myself enjoying the movie and a whole is, lot it's, more. It's that, it's that person who understands what it is that they're making satire about, not someone just on the outside yeah. looking in. So, uh, so kudos to Jonathan Lynn. Again, great, great pick. That was, that was an excellent one. Okay. So that was the number 99 film. Yes. All right. Moving on to the number 98 on the list, we have 1996's Swingers, directed by Doug Lyman, starring John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. It says here that Swingers is a 1996 American comedy drama film about the lives of single unemployed actors living on the east side of Hollywood, California, during the 1990s Swing Revival. Written by John Favreau and directed by Doug Lyman, the film starred Favreau alongside Vince Vaughn, featuring performances by Ron Livingston and Heather Graham. It was a critical and commercial hit. The film helped propel Favreau, Vaughn, Graham, and Livingston into stardom, while also launching Doug Lyman's career as he won the award for Best New Filmmaker at the prestigious, I added that word, <laughs> 1997 MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> Yes, one of the most yeah, one of the most uh, well honored uh, award shows out there. I, <laughs> I've always paid particularly close attention to the award for best kiss. Every, so, everyone has, yeah. I'm sure there's there's a, a special place out there for that. Swingers was a movie to me that it, this was a this is actually a really special movie to me. It actually means quite a bit to me. It um, was made on a budget of two hundred thousand. It made four point six million. It had one hell of an afterlife once it hit home video it did but it's when you watch the movie what i love about this film is it really is a a snapshot of an era that we lived through that doesn't exist anymore no and it's it is such a culturally significant film in that while establishing what life was like at that time at the reemergence of swing it also brought in just so many overall catchphrases i mean the whole you know you're you're so money baby like you're that i could not tell you how many times i heard that over and over again it was the first movie that i watched that i realized that it was speaking directly to 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 me yes like i was like wait a second this is how guys really talk to each other like the way that men were represented in movies up until this point you know we're the toughest nails you know nothing right. nothing nothing ever hurts us uh, this was the first one where we saw vulnerability in our in our lead character yeah and and all of his friends trying to bring him through this breakup that he experienced he's been with someone for six years and they've broken up and it's been six months later and he's still hung up on her and it's not these guys going like Ah, you've, you know, quit being a fucking pussy. Get out there and, you know, bang some chicks. It's guys going, I, I understand what you're going through. I've been through it. Yeah. Like yeah. girls, they're going to wait until you're, you're completely over them and then they're going to call you and they're going to tell you to come back to them. And like, that's literally what happens yeah. in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So you have Favreau, you basically, uh, you have Favreau, his character's name is Mike. He's a unemployed 
comedian slash actor. He's moved out to L.A. where his friends are, and he, he's trying to make it in the business. Meanwhile, he's he's dealing with this personal, yeah, you know, tragedy in his life that his girlfriend, who's seen someone else, and uh, it just you know, there's a scene where it opens up with him with Ron Livingston at the diner, and and, yeah. and Livingston's kind of giving him the advice. This is this is what you have to expect. And he comes back to his apartment, and he checks his answering machine, and and <laughs> and it's so real because I I've experienced that where you know like you know you you nowadays you look at your phone and did you get a text from this person and and you know, but when I also say that this is sort of a snapshot of an era that doesn't exist, like there's no social media at this right. point, like now. Now, in modern times, he would just be on the Facebook. He'd be Facebook stalking right. her, you yeah. know, like looking at the pictures. and Like she's out with somebody else. Yeah, and yeah. We, and she's we scrap meddling with someone else. And, and we do that. You know, that's something that we do. And there's so much realism in this movie that when I watch it, uh, I never get bored of it. I never get bored of the characters. And, and Vince Vaughn, talk about... <laughs> So prior to this movie, Vince Vaughn and John Favreau were both had small roles in the movie Rudy. Yep. Stay tuned. And, <laughs> and, but Vince Vaughn's character in this one, Trent, okay, he has literally staked his entire film career on the personality that he chose to go with in Everything this film. Everything from here stems from this. If you are a fan of Vince Vaughn, you're going to love him in this movie. He's perfect in this he's, role. He's money, baby. He's money. He's absolutely money. It's that one twenty nice, baby. You got 20 bucks. You know, I mean, not kind of what happened on the first table. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. You know, I'm down too, Michael, right? Yeah, what'd you lose? I don't know what I dropped. Let's see. I dropped probably 35 or Don't give me that shit. You know exactly what you lost. What'd you drop? 20, all right? But I was down at least 50. I'm sorry. I got lucky on the crab stick. You won, right? You shouldn't be sorry. You're a winner. I'm the fucking loser. I'm the one who should be sorry. Baby, don't talk that way. Can we just go, please? Can we go? Baby, look at me. Look at me. Your money. And you know what else? You're a big winner tonight. I want to leave. You're a big winner. I'm going to ask you a simple question. I want you to listen to me. Who's the big winner here tonight at the casino? Huh? Mikey, that's who. Mikey's the big winner. Mikey wins. Fucking All right, fine. I'm an asshole, but you know what? You're the big winner tonight, Mikey. You're the big winner in more ways than one. There you two are. I walked around for an hour with stupid scotch on my tread. Yeah, you got knocked out pretty fast. Oh, a couple of high rollers like yourself. Can you believe it? I'll go get you that scotch. You know, forget about it. I didn't even want it. I just wanted to order it. Well, can I get you something else? I mean, you really shouldn't leave here without getting something for free. Why ruin a perfect night? Listen, um... Bring a single malted uh, Glengarry for me and one for my boy Mikey here. And if you tell the bartender to go easy on the water, then this 50-cent piece has your name written all over it, okay? I want you to run along because I'll be timing you. I'm going to keep time. One, two, three, four. What an asshole. Baby, that was money. Tell me that wasn't money. That was so demeaning. She smiled, baby. I can't believe what an asshole you are. No, no, baby, she smiled. I can't. I, she was smiling what an asshole No, 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 no. She was smiling at how money I was. What I did with her. Could we get out of here all right? Because I'm not going to pay for a Mike, what the hell do you want to get out of here for? The honey baby's bringing us a cocktail. What are you, now? nuts? You think she's coming back here? Baby, I know she's coming back here. Did you even hear what she said? You shouldn't leave without getting something for free. Baby, she wants to party. She wants to. I'm tired. We should just go. Baby, this is what we came here for. Now, we met a beautiful baby, and she likes you. She likes you. Whatever. Daddy's going to get her to bring a friend. Now, I don't care if I end up with her, but one of her beautiful baby friends. 
Just, I've, been, I've been out of the game for so long, man. It's been like six years. Mike, listen, it's hard. I know, I've been there myself. I mean, not for six years or anything, but I've been there. The best thing you can do is just get back out there. It's just, I, I'm not attracted to them. I keep thinking of my girlfriend. And, and then I'm trying to, like, maintain a conversation with them. And oh, I, Mike, do you even think I know what the hell they're saying to me half the time? I don't know if they're talking about how hard it is to be adopted or how their dad can't show them affection. All I do, man, is stare at their mouth and wrinkle my eyebrows, and somehow I turn out to be a big sweetie, okay? I take this girl here, right? She's a waitress in Las Vegas, okay? But I bet somewhere inside of her there is a very, very special dream. And no matter how hard I try, I won't... Hey, there she is, the most special lady in town, right? Yep. What time do you get off, uh, Christy? Six. Six o'clock, great. Easy on the water. Fantastic. Uh, listen, why don't you call a friend and have her meet the uh, three of us at the Bamboo Lounge at 6.01? You got it. All right? If you are not a fan of Vince Vaughn, I might even tell you to skip this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I remember going to L.A. for the first time a couple years ago and staying in West Hollywood and and just realizing there is a vibe about that town, about that area, about that part of L.A. where, you know, one of the guys I was with, it was like it was just like in this movie. It's like we're going to have dinner at a restaurant. But we have to go to this bar first for a drink. Then we yep. have to go here. Then we have to go here. And then yep. when at the end of the night, we're going to go to Mel's Diner and we're going to have breakfast. And it was like before the dust settled, we had been to like nine different places. Yeah. And and that is so perfectly represented in this film. Party and, starts at eight, but we'll be there at midnight. Exactly. Yeah. And, but also the the relationship advice that they give him, like he, when he meets Nikki at <laughs> It's, it's just a great scene where he he goes up there and he's like he's like a I'm a comedian and he just catches him and he's like yeah I'm thinking about buying a new car you know I'm doing well for myself and she recognizes him I I know you I know you so oh you you came into Starbucks Put and an asked, me, to Starbucks. asked me for an application he's, he's like, like oh yeah a long time yeah, ago that no was like two weeks, two weeks ago, ago. <laughs> so and he gets he gets the number and he's all excited he's like I got the number and they're like how long do you wait oh you got to wait. You know, a week, you gotta wait, and two days, and then he goes back and he calls her. And that scene, I we just have to listen. Everyone, yeah, yeah, we've all, <laughs> we've all been there. It gets to the point. I'm sorry. Okay, so that that scene is just just called. <laughs> I love it when he says he's called so many times, and he goes, "Nikki, it's it's not you, it's me." <laughs> You know, I've just got out of relationship, and she picks up the phone. I love it. She picks up the phone. Don't ever call me again. The like the balls on this movie though, like it it's such a for a two hundred thousand dollar movie, there's literally a scene that takes place in Las Vegas shot in a casino. Like I'm so impressed with, with what they accomplished yeah. on such a small budget. Okay. And they they everyone John Favreau and Vince Vaughn are so self deprecating. And what where I think everyone falls in love with Vince Vaughn is when they actually land a couple of casino waitresses, take them back to their trailer, and Vince Vaughn is getting ready to hook up with one of them, and John Favreau's lamenting about his lost love, and he goes, he's like, I, I, I just need to call and check I, my answering machine. The phone is in the bedroom. The phone's in the bedroom. He's, and he's, wait, wait, wait. He also says, it's okay, I have a calling <laughs> he's card. Got a, he got a one an 800 card. And he, he gets John, or Vince Vaughn, out of the bedroom where he's definitely going to score. He's, he's got a towel around. Yeah, him he's going to score. Point. And 
he called, you know, he goes in and, and, and Vince Vaughn definitely does, he does not hook up with this girl after, you know, something that's guaranteed and he's not mad. No. That's what I love about it. That's what I, that's where, where it becomes endearing is Vince Vaughn is like, it's not about me. It's not about me hooking up with some chick. It's about you. Let's, let's get you better. And you see this friendship start to develop. And that for me was where I became invested in this movie overall. Like it's, it's, it's not about guys getting out there and being guys. It's about guys taking care of guys. It, yeah. And, and there's, there, you, there's a real camaraderie that come camaraderie there and you recognize it. But I will say that like I would watch this movie in the late nineties and I would try to like listen to Trent's advice where he was like, you know, girls don't want that. You know, they, they want a guy, mis- mysterious guy. You know, they're not, they yeah. don't want the PG 13 guy. Oh, I re- really hope he gets, gets, it. they want the R R rated guy. You know, you're not really sure about him just yet. Like, yeah. uh, I, I just love this it. Is, I, this I, is the evolution of Vince Vaughn. Like from here on out, this is, this is his persona. And I, I just, I love the way the movie ends with, you know, Heather Graham calling him and yes. and realizing that, you know, she's broken the rule. I know she's I think you're supposed to wait two days. I don't know. I don't know. There's this Sinatra thing going on. And I'd really like for you to go with me. And and that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's it. Yeah. You don't you have no idea what's going to happen with their relationship. And it cuts to them in the diner, Vince Vaughn and and uh, John Favreau and Fav- uh, Vaughn. And Vince Vaughn thinks that there's a girl making making moves, you know, waving at him and everything, and she ends up having an she's got a baby. She's got a baby. That's just like this is perfect. Sums up sums up his entire experience in this movie. So, uh, like I said, movie uh, kicks off the career of everybody. Doug Liman goes on to just become like a big time director. Oh yeah, yeah. Mr. Miss Smith, Edge of Tomorrow, Born you know. Identity. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah he, he did really well for himself. So that was the and uh, John Favreau was never heard of again. No, I know. <laughs> Poor guy. I know. What is John Favreau what is, been doing What could lately? he be up to yeah, lately? I haven't seen him in anything <laughs> lately. I, have, I don't even know if he's, if he's directed anything. or. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those, like, he spent, you know, two hundred to 250000 making this movie, yeah. sold it to Miramax for $5 million. It made maybe that in the theaters. And then everything he did from there just, I mean, went... You know, even f- I, I, I love his Netflix series where he's cooking. Mm. I mean, one of my favorite things <laughs> that he would do was the dinner for five where, yeah, where he'd yeah, have the filmmakers or, on yeah, his chef at a show. Restaurant. Like, yeah, I like, mean, like just, he, uh, talk about a guy who's diver- diversified his career I mean, from, you know, the Star Wars universe to the Marvel universe. Yeah. I mean, give it to John Favreau. He's 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 one of my idols. Probably my favorite role that he's ever done was Eric the Clown in Seinfeld. Oh, <laughs> I loved so. Before all this, PCU. PCU is great. PCU, yeah. If you could blow me where the diapers yeah. is. I mean, Eric the Clown. <laughs> You're hung up from a clown from the 60s, man. <laughs> George is like, Bozo the Clown? You never heard of Bozo? <laughs> You're living in a fantasy, man. You're hung up by some clown from the 60s. So, uh, good job. Obviously, great, great film. So, let's talk about the number 97 film on our list of the uh, 101 movies from the 90s we recommend. All right. Going into number 97. Probably much like the theme of this movie, I have seen it more times than I can count. It's one of those seminal movies that if you once you've watched it, you cannot get it out of your mind. It it's a, it's a splinter. It's something that overall I think defined movies of the 90s and really has not been 
recreated since, and that's 1993's Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. I'd like to point out the first PG-rated movie on our list. Every movie okay. we have talked about I since then it. has been R-rated. Let's enter it. So Groundhog Day is a 1993 American fantasy comedy directed by Harold Ramis, uh, also based on a screenplay written written by him. Um, it stars Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, and Chris Elliott. Murray portrays Phil Connors, a cynical television weatherman covering the annual Groundhog Day event in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, who becomes trapped in a time loop forcing him to relive February 2nd repeatedly. The film also stars Stephen Tobolowsky, Brian, Dory, Brian Doyle Murray, uh, and a few others there. Um, okay, so I watched this today. I knew we were going to talk about this. Yep. Uh, I watched it today. There are certain roles that Bill Murray is absolutely perfect for, and the cynical, snarky role is, has been his bread and butter going back to, to meatballs, to Ghostbusters, to Stripes, to Scrooged. I was thinking about this, but this might be, this might be one of my favorite performances I by will, Bill Murray. I will charge that this is his best role in his cinematic career. And this role was offered to Tom Hanks, to Michael Keaton, to Chevy Chase. All of whom turned it down. You know, you say this. I can see. I can see Chevy Chase in this role. Yeah, I, I, I could too. I can see that. Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks. No, Tom not Hanks so much. outright turned it down. He was like, every role I've taken, everyone knows I'm going to be redeemed. I I can't play the jerk who gets redeemed. It needs to be someone who's actually a jerk. Yeah, and it that's Bill Murray in this. The, watching this today, here's the thing about Groundhog Day. Watching this today, I'm not sure that there is enough appreciation for the amount of time it took to make this movie because okay. there is so much that happens in this movie. There is so much that happens that has to be repeated over and over again. That has to be perfect every time. And I'm watching this just from a technical level going, this film is an absolute masterpiece. It really is. And it is so goddamn funny. And what I love about this movie and, you know, what would have been what would have been this movie's downfall if they said from the beginning, all right, here's why he's in this town time loop. Exactly. They don't explain it. Never they leave it, it up to the audience to understand it. They give you they say you're smart enough. You find a reason why he's doing this. They let the audience in on the joke in on the in on the theme and say, we don't, we, we're not going to tell you why. We're, and we never know why. And what I like about this is, is I think in different hands, I'm not sure. You see Bill Murray's character go through a really interesting evolution. Mm -hmm. All right. And one that I'm, I think is somewhat believable. He's, he's Phil Connors. He doesn't want to be there. There's right at the beginning when he's doing the weather and he sits down and, and she goes, oh. is this is your, this is your third time going forth? That, that's what I love is fourth. Out of his entire year, they pick the one day that is the worst day for him ever. He goes through, like, the first few days, uh, like, I'm going to talk about the time loop. The first few days, he's still trying to figure out what is going on and what is going on. So, what are the chances of getting out today? The van still won't start. Larry's working on it. Wouldn't you know it. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Jim Beam, ice, water. For you, miss? Sweet vermouth in the rocks with a twist, please. Mm. 
What are the chances of getting out of town today? The van still won't start. Larry's working on it. Oh, wouldn't you know it? Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Mine, too. It always makes me think of Rome, the way the sun hits the buildings in the afternoon. Huh. Well, what should we drink to? To the groundhog. I always drink to world peace. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Mine, too. Mm. It always makes me think of Rome. The way the sun hits the buildings in the afternoon. But what should we drink to? I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. To world peace. World peace. A lesser movie would have had him say, this is impossible. Yes. This can't be happening. Yeah. Sit down, you know, yeah. put your, cross your arms and go, nope, not, I'm not doing he, this. He accepts this. He, he accepts it. And he becomes suicidal. Like, he doesn't even want to be a part of this anymore. He's going absolutely mentally insane from this happening. Well, That's an interesting choice. Well, I'll tell you. So I've read this one article, and I think it was from Harold Ramis, who said that when they were approaching this, they looked at, it at the, the Kubler-Ross, like when someone dies, the stages of grief you go through. And it was denial, which is him at the beginning, like, this is not happening. Anger, which is just, you know, acting out. Bargaining, which is him trying to get, you know, Rita in bed to depression, where he just... Starts killing himself over and over in the, in, in, the, in the bathtub. And finally, acceptance of, all right, I'm, I'm here. What, what am I going to do with this? And you see this happen, you know, with the, uh, this, this change in him with the, with the homeless guy. He tries to, yes. he tries to, he, he, and it's just inevitable. Like, yeah. yeah you, there's nothing you can do to save this person. And he tries a bunch of different things and it's just, um, and it's just, it be, even though he goes through, like you said, those stages of grief. The movie never loses its its tone of being fun. No. And it's it's fun. And that is one thing that Harold Ramis, as a director, nails in all of his movies. Look at, I mean, one of my all-time favorite Harold Ramis-directed movies, National Lampoon's Vacation, mm-hmm. the Wally World movie. Like, yeah. that movie never loses its fun. And, yeah. and, and I, I just absolutely adore this film. And I'm so glad that, you know, you put this on the list. Yeah. And, you know, the, the sad thing about this, too, is this was... This was the end of the Bill Murray Harold Ramis collaboration. They had a falling out. Yeah. They had a huge falling out of this movie, and you know, depending on who you choose to believe, Bill Murray was going through a divorce. He wanted this to be a more philosophical movie. Harold Ramis wanted this to be a, a more comedic movie. The two of them clashed. It took, I think, it was over ninety days of production to get this thing done in the winter, in the cold, completely redoing the same scene over and over again because you had to and that's what's again and it just it that trauma of the movie production and their relationship it it shows and it's sadly you know from what again 
to, to, to use a reference you just said, depending on what you believe, you know, when Harold Ramis passed away, there was that question of whether or not those two had ever actually reconciled, you yeah. know, their, their differences. Yeah. And uh, that's, it's, you know, I don't want to end on a, on a sad note when talking <laughs> about this movie, but this is, it's a really special film. And, you know, of all the movies we've talked about so far, this being the one that I, I watched today, I remember just being like, this was something really special. And yeah. it was, it was popular at the time. You know, the, the budget somewhere between 14 and 30 million, depending on the source, made 105 million again. Yeah. Had a huge second life on home. Well, video. and the other, the other crazy thing too is it was, this was filmed in Woodstock, Illinois outside, you know, just outside of Chicago. And they, Woodstock, Illinois now has a Groundhog's Day festival <laughs> that rivals the Punxsutawney festival. Um, I, I, I'm going to ask you, uh, did you see the Andy Samberg movie Palm Springs? No. Okay. So, um, gosh, I don't want to spoil the movie because if you don't know what Palm Springs, if you don't know the plot of the film, it's better to go into it not knowing, All right, except down. obviously if I'm bringing up Groundhog Day, okay. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a huge comparison between the two films. I think the big difference being that Palm Springs is definitely rated R. Okay. And so imagine, if you will, an R-rated version of Groundhog Day starring Andy Samberg. Ooh. And I think the movie's terrific. Okay. I think when was that released? I think that was a, that was a 2020 pandemic movie. I think was it, was, it? it was released during, okay. in 2020, if I remember correctly. But it, it's, it's terrific. I, I definitely, definitely recommend it. All right. All right. So moving on to number 96 on our list. All right. It's going to be the first of what I call a, a few football movies. Now, I mentioned this earlier that uh, both John Favreau and back Vince Vaughn. Back to our two. They, they have guys. smaller roles in this movie. And that is going to be 1993's Rudy. Okay. Which. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> just, just okay. Rudy is a 1993 American biographical sports film directed by David Aspo. It is an account of the life of Daniel Rudy Rudiker, who harbored dreams of playing football at the University of Notre Dame despite significant obstacles. It was the first film that the Notre Dame administration allowed to be shot on campus since uh, All-American in 19, 1940. In 2005, Rudy was named one of the best 25 sports movies of the previous 25 years in two polls by ESPN and uh, ESPN.com. It was ranked as the, as the 54th most inspiring film of all time in the American Film Institute's 100 Years series. So, okay. Why do I love Rudy so much? <laughs> Tell me. Number one. Okay. Look, this is radio. Nobody can see us. <laughs> all right. I'm not that tall. I wasn't that great at sports. But I had big dreams. I wanted to play sports, you know. But you know, you you know, ninety percent of high school football players, their high their their football career ends when high school is over. This is just a really heartfelt, inspiring movie about somebody not giving up. And there's a certain level of authenticity for this film because it was shot on location, and it is a true story. And I did meet the real. Daniel Rudy Rudiker about four years ago. 
I think he was about thinks about seventy years old now. But I met him. He does a lot of motivational speaking. He does. He does. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, meeting him in person, he is even smaller than you would believe. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm almost five seven. This guy was two inches shorter than me. He is a really little guy. But the reason this movie made this list is because I don't care how many times I've seen this film. The final game that is played in this movie, when he makes it to the field, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done for. <laughs> I, I, I just I can't recover from that scene. And when they hoist him up on his shoulders, forget it. I'm done. It is, it is an incredibly inspiring true story. So I think <laughs> the, the cinematic version of it versus the actual historical version of it, I think, differs a whole Vastly lot. Vastly different. Vastly um, different. No. So I I knew the account of what happened before I saw the movie. So I don't have as much of a emotional response to it. Also, have you, have you ever heard of um, uh, Strengths Finders? No, I don't know. Uh, so I was part of an organization that did strengths finders where they, they focus on, don't, they don't look at your weaknesses. They look at your strengths and you focus on your strengths and that's what you do. And their whole premise, and I think it's on like page three of their manual is one of the worst examples of focusing on your weaknesses is Rudy. Right. <laughs> like, or, you know, like if, if Michael Jackson, or Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, if he was two feet shorter, <laughs> and couldn't dunk a basketball then don't focus on basketball right like rudy if you're not gonna if you're only gonna play in one one play play one one game game, your time is better well spent somewhere else (laughs) and and, all that but if you think about his strengths and weaknesses he wasn't a very good student either No, he wasn't a good student (laughs) he wasn't a a great football player a bit of an alcoholic too he he, he definitely liked to hit the sauce quite a bit so the, the whole thing about strength finders was focus on what makes you better not what makes you worse and if like me personally i am never ever gonna dunk a basketball so i shouldn't focus on an nba career no no that, um, well well said well said hey, hey 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 what you doing here don't you have practice not anymore i quit oh well since when are you the quitting kind i don't know i just don't see the point anymore so you didn't make the dress list there are greater tragedies in the world. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone prove that I worked. What? That I was somebody. Oh, you are so full of crap. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't going to never happen. Now go on back. I'm sorry I never got you to see your first game in here. Hell, I've seen too many games in this stadium. I thought you said you never saw a game. I've never seen a game from the stands. You were a player? I rode the bench for two years. Thought I wasn't being played because of my color. I got filled up with a lot of attitude. 
so I quit. Still not a week goes by, I don't regret it. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life, you won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. You hear me clear enough? All of that aside, I do like the movie. I think Sean Astin did an amazing job portraying Rudy. I think the overall story, if it did not en- encompass the supporting cast in there, this would have been a garbage movie. This is, I think, let's call it what it is. It's an Oscar bait movie. It is. It's yes. 100% an Oscar bait movie. Yeah. I mean, it is very, you know, the best way, it's a warm and fuzzy movie. Yes. Okay. It's a warm blanket. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to challenge your, it's not going to make you think. It's not going to make you just go, you know, I'm, I'm going to change the world after watching. It's not going to inspire you to do anything other than get on your, get on your Xbox and put in NCAA 12 and play, you know, play yeah. football because but there's some really good performances in it. And I, I appreciate it for the story it tells. I think it does have a, does have a significant place in the 1990s film absolutely genre and i will say this the film is absolutely timeless yes and what i mean by that it takes place in the in the 70s it comes out in the 90s it takes place in the early 70s and it is very authentic there's no there's no modern day film techniques that are being used that were being ushered in in the 1990s. Yep. So it it very much is a time capsule movie. Yeah. Kind of the way Swingers is. It's 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 capturing a time, but it's capturing a time, mm-hmm. kind of like another movie that's going to make our list somewhere down the road. Days to Confuse, a movie that came out in the 90s, oh, takes man. place in the 70s. It's very accurate for for its time. So, but I will say Love this it. about Rudy. Made on a 12 million dollar budget. Box office on this only twenty two million dollars, so yeah. it wasn't. Again, God, movies had a, there was always a, two ways to judge a movie's financial performance. There was the theatrical, and then there was the home video. And, yeah, I was gonna say the the home video and the overall whatever streaming platform it's on now. I don't know what they how how much that that back end is, but. It was definitely a successful movie. It, it was. And the, in the end. And it's one that I think is still very, you know, it's still very endearing for people. Yes. So, okay. So that was number 96 on the list. Number 95 was one that you added to the list. I did. And I have. What do you think? I have thoughts. Okay. I have thoughts. I'll I let, love thoughts. I'll let you introduce the, I'll let you introduce the, the, the movie. Uh, I'll give so you the plot synopsis here. This one, um, Number 95 on the list was released on 12-11-98, which is also would have been Sally's 16th birthday. Okay. Uh, 17th birthday. This is Shakespeare in Love. This was a massively popular film. All this right. was a massively popular film. I did see this in the theater. Okay. Okay. Shakespeare in Love is a 1998 romantic period comedy drama film directed by John Madden. Okay, the film, it's the movie stars Gwyneth Paltrow, Joseph Fiennes, Jeffrey Rush, Colin Firth, Ben Affleck. The list goes on. A lot of heavy, heavy, heavy ones in this one. The film depicts a fictional love affair involving playwright William Shakespeare and Viola Gwyneth Paltrow. 
When Shakespeare was writing Romeo and Juliet, several characters are based on historical figures, and many of the characters' lines and plot devices allude to Shakespeare's plays. Okay. All right. Let's get into this. Okay, so... <sighs> so John Madden, his third film. Okay, yeah. Only really known before this for directing Ethan Frome. No. Okay. Um, two of... Two writers who are not the typical Hollywood writers, um, one of whom wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, one of the best plays ever. These are writers who are well immersed in Shakespearean theory. Which I'm just going to go ahead and say real quick. I'm not an expert in at all. I'm not even a casual observer of. Okay. I did see this movie in the theater because there was a ton of hype surrounding it. And Gwyneth Paltrow gets naked. She does get naked in it. And I was 20 years old <laughs> when this film came out. <sighs> all right. Just uh, listen. We're, we're, let's, let's go. Have an honest conversation. Let's go. I, yeah. I, I saw it in the theater in 1998. I left somewhat underwhelmed. And I, I chose to never revisit it again. <gasps> now, having said that, I'm now 44 years old. Okay? okay. So this was 24 years ago. And I was different back then. Well, so like, let me let me ask you this. Yes. Did you ever see Romeo and Juliet? Uh, are we talking about the 1967? 1967 or any play. I did see the 1967. I did see the Baz Luhrmann. No, uh, that doesn't count. That one doesn't count. Doesn't but count. I, I, so I did see the um, the famous one from the 1960s. Okay. I actually watched an English class in high school and then okay. rewatched it about six years ago. Have you ever actually read? No. Okay. No. And that's just being completely honest. Like, okay. no, like this. Is- no, no, no. It's it's it. To me, what I what I what I drew out of this, I loved Romeo and Juliet. I think that is one of the most perfect love stories ever. If you take into account the fact that he's 17, she's 13, you know what? Right. right. Uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was Italy back in the, you know, 1500s. But um, what I got out of this, the Shakespearean themes that were present in how this it, was basically the Romeo and Juliet origin story. Exactly. Yeah. And what I got out of it was, it was a very sweet retelling of how the story came to be. Right. I think that I overthink Gwyneth Paltrow did an amazing job in it. There was not an imperfect performance in this film. I am going, because we're having this conversation and this is literally the 101 movies from the nineties that we recommend. This will get a rewatch probably tonight after we're <laughs> done recording, because I'm not going to, my memory of like leaving the theater watching this film was I didn't hate the movie. I didn't go like, Oh, that was, I remember it literally saying something to the effect of that was fine. And I, you know, I, I was able to follow along with it and everything, yeah. but something happened three months later that made me sort of swear off this movie, the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards, <laughs> because um, in August of 1998, Yep. One of the most powerful movies I've ever seen in my life, and one that is 100% going to be on this list of movies, uh, was released. And that, of course, is Saving Private Ryan. So, and of all the awards that this movie won, it did not win Best Director. It did not win Best Director. 
Um, it did win Best Picture. It did win Best Picture. Um, and I'm, I've read a book called The Men Who Would Be King, and it's the unauthorized oral history of DreamWorks. And there's an entire chapter devoted to Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan was a DreamWorks picture. I will, I will tell you this. If I had to choose between – the, if I was the Academy and yes. I had both of these in front of me and I had to choose which is the better film, it is 100% – Saving Private Ryan, right. no doubt whatsoever. I invite people to to really do dig into this story because what the uh, the person in charge of Miramax, uh, the, the the person who will not be named, mm-hmm. he essentially, or excuse me, this person essentially, from my interpretation, bought the Academy Award for Best Picture because he was arranged <clears throat> because this person was arranging. Private screenings for Academy members in which you would be sitting next to Gwyneth Paltrow and uh. Joseph Fine, one on your right, one on your left, to watch this movie. Because uh, my friend Phil Juano, who's in the the DGA, like I was asking him the other day if he had seen a certain movie. He goes, oh, you know what? It just arrived as a screener because, you know, the award seasons are kicking up. So typically you would just get a screener copy of the movie. But... The, this particular person was having these lavish parties, inviting hundreds of uh, uh, voter, voters oh, yeah. to 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 meet meet the cast, spend a day with them, go on a cruise with them, whatever you want. Because there's so much. I don't think the Oscars have as much weight as they did in the yeah. you know the first sixty years of their existence. But certainly winning an at Academy, this time, yeah, yeah, at this time, but winning yeah. an Academy Award back then. Well, and this one picked up Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting yeah. Actress, Best Screenplay, Art, Costume, Musical, Score, like... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, or is he? Row your boat! She tells me to keep away. She is to marry Lord Wessex. What should I do? If you love her, you must do as she asks. I break her heart and mine? It is only yours you can know. She loves me, Thomas. Does she say so? No. And yet she does where the ink has run with tears. Was she weeping when she gave you this? Uh, her letter came to me by the nurse. Your aunt? Yes, my aunt. But perhaps she wept a little. Tell me how you love her, Will. Like a sickness and its cure together. Yes. Like rain and sun. Like cold and heat. Is your lady beautiful? <clears throat> Since I, I, I came here from the country, I've not seen her close. Tell me, is, is she beautiful? Well, Thomas, if I could write the beauty of her eyes, I was born to look in them and know myself. Uh, and her lips? Her lips? The early morning rose would wither on the branch if it could feel envy. And her voice, like Lark's song. Deeper, softer, none of your twittering larks. I would banish nightingales from her garden before they interrupt her song. Ah, oh, she sings too. Constantly, without doubt, and plays the lute. She has a natural ear and her bosom. Did I mention her bosom? What of her bosom? Oh, Thomas. A pair of pippins as round and rare as golden apples. I think the lady is wise to keep your love at a distance. But what lady could live up to it? Close to when her eyes and lips and voice may be no more beautiful than mine. 
Uh, I'm going to give it a rewatch, but the numbers. It, Talk about how much money this movie made. It so made the, a shitload the of money. budget on this was $25 million, and the numbers I've seen, it made close to $290 million I mean, overall. That, that's just in. That's before you throw in the whatever they video. paid for yep. the... Yeah, for the the private screenings, but um, I mean, to me, this is this is one movie that, no matter when I rewatch it, that the last pivotal scene where they're doing where they're they're doing Romeo and Juliet on on the stage, the end of it just wrecks me. Yeah, the the scene between those two in the catacombs just, I I feel exactly what. They show the audience feeling and Judy Dench. I mean, playing Queen Elizabeth just steals the show in this. I owe it to you to rewatch this movie. Yeah. Because I'm really, I'm not, you, you will notice that throughout this conversation we've had, I never, no point have I, have I said anything to the effect of, Oh, this movie's garbage. Right. It's, I saw it once 24 years ago. I was a different person back then. I need to really give this thing a rewatch. I can't remember almost anything about this except really? Gwyneth Paltrow had some crazy dress that she kept or clothing that she kept spinning. <laughs> yeah, out that of. was yeah. the nude scene. You, yeah. Of course you remember that. Of course, that, that one sticks out in my mind. All right. <laughs> moving so, on. Moving on. We're going to be moving on to the number number 94 on our list. Got to be one of my favorites. Now, this one. This is. Good call for this one. This is probably uh, this. This is in a I have done over the nine years of this podcast. I have done a few, you know, top 10 lists from time to time. And this one has always been on my top top 10 list. It's not necessarily been number one. The number one will never be dethroned, at least I don't think in my lifetime. Number one movie for me, which is Jaws. But this is easily a top five for me. And. This was a movie that I owned a, a VHS copy of, a director's cut VHS copy of the film. I just listened to the the writer's uh, commentary on Sunday. Oh, wow. The entire writer's commentary. I would love to listen to it's that. It's on YouTube. It's amazing. Oh, is it? Okay, done. It done. I'm, I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah. I'm talking about 1993's True Romance. Son of a bitch. Right? <laughs> True Romance is a 1993 American romantic crime film. Well, that's putting it subtle. That's putting it very, very subtle. Directed by Tony Scott and written by Quentin Tarantino. It features an ensemble cast. That's putting it subtle. That subtly. is very putting it. Yeah. Uh, led by Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette with Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, and Christopher Walken in supporting roles. Slater and Arquette portray newlyweds on the run from the mafia after stealing a shipment of drugs. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. That's putting it mildly as um, well. True Romance began life as an early script by Tarantino. He sold the screenplay in order to finance his debut feature film, Reservoir Dogs. Stay tuned. It is regarded by proponents as a cross-section of writer Tarantino and director Scott's Ret- ret- uh, respective trademarks and that's what perfectly said perfectly said including a southern california setting pop culture references and stylized violence punctuated by slow motion now i remember the first time seeing this film i really didn't have a grasp on who quentin tarantino was Reser- nobody did reservoir dogs yeah. had come out because that yeah. was 91 and i had seen reservoir dogs the, the year after it came out i did not correlate that 
watching True Romance was a Quentin Tarantino film. I didn't I didn't put that together. Yeah. So I just remember seeing this probably ninety late ninety three, maybe early ninety four. Pulp fiction doesn't come out till November of ninety four. Yeah. Okay. And just being I'm sixteen years old, man, and I am listening to dialogue that I have never heard before. And I'm talking like the first fifteen, twenty minutes of this movie. I'm so into this like romance which we all look at like this is ridiculous you're not going to fall in love with a with a call girl and get married the next day but i'm buying into it yep i identify with slater's character clarence you know he's kind of a loner but he knows you know he's so hip with the pop culture and the movies and i'm like that's me i know all the movies and blah 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 so i really identified with his character the way this movie gives you sort of pulls the rug from under you like you think this is just some kind of what i best described as a choppy romantic movie uh, because there's a lot of questions about this relationship even working to when clarence decides to get alabama's clothes clothing back from her pimp Drexel. Yep. Then the movie just goes into a direction that I don't think anyone's prepared for. No. And I, you know, I, I understand why they chose the name of the movie true romance, but I wish they had picked something else because I think if it had a title like reservoir dogs or pulp fiction, it would have more staying power Yeah, because true romance, it defines the two of their relationship. But nothing else in the movie. This is a movie, okay, this is a movie that I have had the pleasure of introducing to people over the years. Isn't it so much fun? It's one of those ones, like, um, I'm not together with my, my, my last girlfriend. We're not together anymore. But, like, you know, six months into our relationship, she had never even heard of the movie. It's, and it, yeah. It's one of those movies where if you're in the know, you know. Yeah. You either have seen True Romance and you love it or you've never seen the movie or you've never heard of it. And you can tell people like this is the breeding ground for Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Like some of the, you know, the, when, they, when he's talking about the hamburgers, you're like, this is Jules. Yeah. You know, talking about like, that's a goddamn great hamburger. Like, yeah. I, that's Every, Pulp Fiction. Like it, it, everything about it, it is, is. Yes, it, it is. It's it is, you know, from what Quentin Tarantino said in, in that commentary between. Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, and Natural Born Killers, which he wrote and they later bastardized into that movie. Which, by the way, can I point out, reading um, his new book, Cinema Speculation, he does go on to to say, he talks about certain movies. He's like, well, this movie was taken over and kind of like what happened to me with Natural yeah, Born Killers. Like, so he hasn't let that go. Yeah, he, hate, he hates it. <laughs> he but, you go. know, he, he defines these first movies as... Hit, hit the first chapter and how he found his voice. And you can see that voice catching on here. Elliot, your motivation is to stay out of jail. Easy, easy, easy. Hi. 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 It's about that time, huh? Yeah. Here we go. You're an actor. Act, motherfucker. Elliot? Yeah? Get on your knees. Oh, no. What? 
bastard. Get on your fucking knees! Eric, what the fuck? Get the fuck out the both of you! I know what the fuck I'm doing. You think I'm pretty fucking stupid, don't you? Eh, don't you? No, no, don't you fucking lie to me, you motherfucker! He's bluffing you, Elliot! He's bluffing you! Can't you see that? Come on, I wanna hear you say it. I wanna hear you say it. Clarence, you are without a doubt... Clarence, shut up! Say it, goddammit! I wanna hear you say it! See, Clarence, you are without a doubt the dumbest motherfucker I've ever seen on the face of the planet! Say it! Dumbfucker! <laughs> Apparently I'm not as dumb as you fucking think I am, am I, huh? Come on, what the fuck is waiting for us up there, huh? What the fuck's waiting for us? It's gonna shoot him. Tell me I'm gonna pump two in your face right here, right now. <laughs> it's not gonna shoot him. Clear enough, motherfucker. It's gonna shoot him. Like Nick Carter used to say, if I'm wrong, I swear to God, I'll fucking apologize, all right? Something's amiss, I can feel it. If anything out of the ordinary goes down, I swear to God, you are gonna be the first one shot. Clarence, he didn't do anything! What the fuck? Shut up! up. All right, I'm gonna blow this motherfucker away. Fuck you! Ah! I wish somebody would just come and get me because I don't like this anymore! Get a hold of yourself, you fucking sissy! I wish somebody would just come and take me away! Just take me away! Hang in there, Elliot! God damn it! I can't face this! I'm sorry, but I just can't! And if there was somebody would just come to my rescue, everything would be alright! Elliot? Elliot? What? I'm sorry, alright? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Prince. What's <laughs> with this guy? What are you playing around? I'm, I'm the only camera. I just had to be sure. That's all. That's all. I'm sure now, okay? I'm sorry, man. I'm not going to scare you. Oh, man. I like this Clarence kid. This fucking guy's crazy. And just knowing where he goes with it from this, I mean, it, it's, it's like being there from the birth of a. A superstar. Yeah. And, and, it's and fantastic. What I what I really, really respect about this movie, besides the fact that I love it, it's one of my all-time favorite <laughs> movies, but what I respect about this is who is it directed by? Tony Scott. Tony Scott. Okay. What has Tony Scott done? He's done Top Gun. He's done Beverly Hills Cop. He's done The Last Boy Scout up until this point. Tony Scott is an upper echelon director. Yep. Okay. Tony Scott is the type of director that he's going to make the movie he wants to make. And it is absolutely crystal clear that he read this script and he said, I'm not changing a fucking thing yeah. in here. And he could have very easily rewrote, had the dialogue rewritten, but you can tell by the dialogue, this is Tarantino through and through. And, and the only thing from what I understand, the only thing he changed is, you know, Tarantino likes to tell a non-linear story, and I yeah. believe the screenplay kind of was laid out in a little more, not so much of a chronological order in some parts. But and but, that's what he, you know, I've heard him say before. When you read a novel, they they jump or you can jump around in a novel, and no one, yeah, it, no one goes, oh well, you can't you can't jump back and forth within the story. But and and he took that and went. Why can't I? Exactly. But I, I do remember him saying, too, that um, originally in his script, um, they get killed in the end. Yeah. And they changed that up. Well, sorry. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, uh, I will say that there's some there's some subtle differences between the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Now, clearly, the director's cut has some more violence in it. Yes. Uh, there's a couple more scenes with some pretty gratuitous language. But in the theatrical cut, uh, Chris Penn's character is actually killed by a different 
character. Oh, really? It, in the director's cut, it's Alabama yeah. who, who shoots him, but it's actually one of the uh, mafioso guys oh. that shoots him. And that's okay. interesting. That's an interesting, small, huh. interesting change in it. Now, so can, we, can we talk about the Sicilian scene? <laughs> can we? Let's play that real quick. Nope. <laughs> even though this is Patreon this is, only. So, nope. <laughs> so how do you, I don't even know how to say this. Quentin Tarantino is one of the only directors who gets away with using the N-word consistently. And that has been consistent through all of his movies. Uh-huh. And, you know. Um, and this is the start of it with the Sicilian scene. Well, and there is there is a there is a line in Reservoir Dogs yes. that Mr. Pink says, yep. you know, which I'm not going to repeat. But yes, you are correct. Um, but it's a powerful scene for the for this reason that I say um, this, this this is one of the reasons why I say this that scene is so powerful because Dennis Hopper's character Clarence's dad has no reservations about what's about to happen mm-hmm. he knows he is never walking out of this situation so what is he going to do he is going to insult the man that he knows is going to kill him he is going to insult him with something that. Uh, is going to be long-lasting beyond this particular scene. And it is. And it stings to watch. It's really, really hard to watch that scene. Like, I, even, you know, 30 years later, and, it's very cringy to watch and, that and scene. In the commentary, Quentin Tarantino, he regretted it, not because of the dialogue or what it was. He regretted it because he thought it was the most powerful scene in the movie. Yeah. That it occurs like in the first thirty, 30 minutes. minutes of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, that is because it's two titans. It's walking it, and Hopper <laughs> going going back and forth, and and Dennis Hopper is so just. There's there's the scene where he's done telling the story, and and you know Walken's laughing, and they're all laughing like they just think it's so funny, and and you think, oh my god, he's gonna he's gonna get out of this. And then you see Hopper to just take a puff of the cigarette and just the look he, in his he face. Knows. He knows he's, he's yeah. he, that's it. He's done. Yeah. He's done. He never sells out his son. No. Nope. He just, you know, it's just. It's a brilliant scene. Probably one of the, one of the better scenes in all of cinema. The movie is so, uh, I, I will admit, like my friend Phil Juano, uh, was, uh, had did a, did a movie in 1990 called State of Grace with Sean Penn and Gary Oldman and him and Gary Oldman became pretty close friends. And, and Phil was Gary Oldman and yeah, this. Come well, on. That's where I'm going with this. Like, like, so Phil was actually on the set. No way. Phil, when they were filming the Drexel scenes. Uh. Cause Gary's like, you got to come see this. Cause Gary Oldman, not a well known name at that time. No. no. He, he hasn't done Dracula yet. You know, he's still the, he's, well, still, he is still the greatest mainstream character actor we've ever put out yeah. there because the man can play any role but he said he was he was literally on set watching them film the drexel scenes so he said you gotta remember there's no booming techno music none of that's all <laughs> done in post you know and i remember <laughs> phil was like what am i watching like, yeah what's gotta be just on fantastic to see this dreadlocked english actor yeah. with scars playing a detroit pimp drug dealer drexel and he kept and he keeps going he must have thought it was white boy day it ain't white boy day is it and he's just like what am i watching okay. uh, one of the great one of the great movies of the 1990s a movie that cannot will not ever be made no today no no you know no, no. It, there are there are scenes in this film the scene between patricia arquette and james gandolfini in the hotel room is brutal oh, and yeah. it goes on so much longer than it needs to in the director's cut and this is literally what got james gandolfini the job with sopranos yeah by by the way by all accounts <laughs> I mean, talking i was talking to john travolta about uh about two months ago because i was watching um i was watching uh 
taking of Pelham one two three. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's a weird world. I the live remake in. or the original. The the, the remake with yeah. with Travolta and yeah, Gandolfini yeah. plays the mayor in yeah. that in that movie and. It's a strange world I live in where if I have a question about a John Travolta movie, I can just text him. And I was just like, hey, John, I know you've worked with Gandolfini <laughs> a couple times going back to Get Shorty in 1995. I said, What's, what was he really like? And John was like, you wouldn't believe it, Dana. The nicest, kindest, sweetest person really? you've ever met in your life. He goes like a gentle giant. And I was like, that makes his performances and he beats so the much. Shit oh, it's out beautiful. Of he gives the, and he gives. That's the thing about uh, this movie is so many of the characters get their little monologues. Yeah. Like the first time I killed somebody, I threw up. You know, oh, like, God. like it's just every, now I just like to watch the expression yeah. go change from their eyes. And like, then you get Whoa. a you get a Brad Pitt cameo where he's just like, I'll fucking kill you, man. Is so it? and here's the other thing that I love about this, and I was reading this rewatching the movie is Pineapple Express. Yeah. Judd Apatow said that Brad Pitt's character in this was his inspiration for Pineapple Express. Yeah. I'm like, ah, um, it's unbelievable. Floyd. The, son uh, of a bitch. So the, the movie was made for a 12.5 million. Tw- the movie was made for 12.5 million. According to the reports here, the box office was 12.6 million. <laughs> uh, another example of a film that became a cult. Yeah. Cult success. And it's so. It's still probably my favorite movie to introduce to people that have never seen it. It's yes. sti- it still is to this day. Um, and to people who have seen the Tarantino films. Exactly. And like, have you seen True Romance? It is the greatest Tarantino film that he never directed. Yeah. Like, it, it is. Tarantino's made nine movies. Uh, you could say he's made nine and a half because I think this fits into his filmography. Yeah. And it's directed by Tony Scott, but. It is Tarantino through and through, yep. through and through. So, okay. So that's going to bring us to number 93 on the list of the we're 100. There, man. We we're are getting, getting there. there. 101 movies from the 90s we recommend. And this was another one that you added to the list. I've got a few things to say about this particular movie, as I did see it in the theater in 1995. Yep. I'll just go ahead and let you introduce the film, then I'll read the synopsis. So the best way I can introduce this film, whether you've seen it or not, I'm just going to say... What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box. Okay. And then go from there. All right. So, of course, you're talking about 1995's David Fincher directed Seven. Yes. Seven is a 1995 American neo-noir psychological crime thriller film directed by David Fincher. It stars Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kevin Spacey, and John C. McGin- John C. McGinley. The film tells the story of retiring and dispirited detective William Somerset played by Morgan Freeman who partners with detective David Mills Brad Pitt to hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives okay so I saw this in the theater in 1995 yep I was 17 years old and this was one of the first movies that I can recall leaving the theater visibly shook this move this is not a happy ending movie no it's not a happy anything this is not <laughs> nothing about this movie's happy it's not a happy ending. well I, I will say that the happy anything in this movie is uh david venture's directing yes um yeah. one of the best directed movies i've ever seen and it's important to understand that David Fincher up until this point was coming off of Alien 3. <laughs> Aliens 3. Which Poor is son of a bitch. Which is not really his fault. You no. know, he, he was brought in 
you know, I did a whole episode on the history of Alien 3 four, four or five years ago, and I believe you can find it here on the Patreon. I think it's on the Patreon fil- uh, list of episodes where he was he was brought in. I won't even say last minute. He was brought in mid-production to try to salvage salvage this. what was left. And they just, he and they, shot, just they hung it around his neck. Yeah, they shot scenes. And then when the movie tanked and bombed and was critically The director, David they, Fincher. They, they blamed it all on him. Um, so, And what I didn't realize before this is... He made most of his his fame and how he got to this point was directing music videos. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I went I looked at that and I went, wait a minute, he was he was on the production of Return of the Jedi, Temple of Doom, and then directed like fifty four music videos? Like Absolutely. Really? And and interesting, the next movie on the list will have the director will have a similar background. Um here's what I can say about seven. I uh, like like we we've w- the these lists are not surprises to you and I. This is the first time that you and I are putting this list together, but we're not. It's not like surprises. So right. I, I knew this was on here. Yeah, I've seen this a few times. I could not bring myself to rewatch this. Movie. Really, this falls into the category of I respect how hmm. how great this film is, and it is a game changer, and it's a pure. 90s movie a movie that could not be made in any other decade possibly the 70s but it is a pure 90s movie and it is absolutely psychologically terrifying film but it is so grim from start to finish and the fact of the matter is with the exception of the final scene with the what's in the box even the, the the tone of the movie, it, you notice it's always raining. Like everything about everything this is thing always, is just yeah. down and dire and just like right right to their apartment that they have where the train goes by, the subway goes by every five minutes. Everything in this movie is designed to make you feel uncomfortable. And it is done so effectively that I can't bring myself to really want to revisit this movie. And that's that's a testament to how powerful the film is. You know, this isn't going to have a happy ending. It's not possible. Hey, man, we catch him, I'll be happy enough. If we catch John Doe and he turns out to be the devil, I mean, if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations. But he's not the devil. He's just a man. You know. See, you bitch, and you complain, and you tell me these things, and these mean If you think you're preparing me for hard times, thank you, but... But you gotta be a, a hero. You wanna be a champion. Well, let me tell you, people don't want a champion. They wanna eat cheeseburgers, play the lotto, and watch television. Hey, how did you get like this? I wanna know. <sighs> there wasn't one thing I can tell you that. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. You know different. You know better. I didn't say I was different or better. I'm not. Hell, I sympathize. I, I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. I mean, it's, it's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with yeah. life. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to, to earn it. Yeah. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Hell, love costs. It takes effort and work. We are talking about people who are mentally ill. We are talking about people 
fucking crazy. No, no, yes. we're not. No, no. We're, we're, we're talking about everyday life here. We, you, you, you can't afford to be this naive. Fuck off. See, you, you should listen to yourself. Yeah. You say that the problem with people is that they don't care. So I don't care about people. It makes no sense. You know why? You, you care. You, you want to know? Damn right. And you're going to make a difference. Whatever. The point is, is that I don't think you're quitting because you believe these things you say. I don't. I think you want to believe them because you're quitting. You want me to agree with you and you want me to say, yeah, 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 you're right. It's all fucked up. It's a fucking mess. We should all go live in a fucking log cabin. But I won't. I won't say that. I don't agree with you. I do not. I can't. This is this is one of the few that because it's so powerful, I love rewatching it. And I love rewatching how David Fincher angles the camera. Like you said, in it's always raining. There's it's always gritty. It's always dark. You you get the as the viewer, it's always you're always confused in it. But he, the way he the way he handles each individual scene, you very rarely get a group scene where it's all right. It's Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, and they're overseeing this. It's always shot behind Brad Pitt onto Morgan Freeman, or vice versa. And even some of the last sequences, you're looking down at Kevin Spacey and up at Morgan Freeman and straight on with, with Brad Pitt. It just, it's one of those rare movies that every time I watch it, I catch something that I have not noticed before. Yeah. And there's so much of it in there. Whether it was intentional or not, it it's just, it's mind blowing. And, and it's, Oh, like I get, I get anxiety thinking about movie. Like the, the one ray of sunshine in this movie, the one bright spot in this movie is Gwyneth Paltrow's character. And even that is taken away from you. Like everything about it is so, this is, this is a quintessential nineties movie that could have been made in the seventies because a lot of seventies movies did not have the, the happy ending. Right. And it, so the one, I'll, I'll challenge you. The other, the other ray of sunshine in this is, Morgan Freeman is just, he hates New York. I think at one point, what does he say? You know, something along the lines of, or Brad Pitt says, I don't think you're quitting because you believe these things. You want to believe them because you're quitting. Like he's, he's leaving this because someone just got stabbed in the eyes outside of the, you know, their police district. Um, at the end of the movie, after Brad Pitt has, killed Kevin Spacey he quotes Ernest Hemingway he says the world is a fine place and worth fighting for and I agree with the second part yeah so after all of this terribleness even Morgan Freeman the worst he's been in the entire movie still agrees that it's there's optimism out there even after I just it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, such a grim movie, but it's so good. It's 
1995, you have Kevin Spacey is in, he's in, um, just watch it. Okay. Usual Suspects? And, yeah, in 1995, Kevin Spacey is in Usual Suspects, and he's in this. This is These are the two movies that announce him to the world. I'm going to spend yes. a lot of time talking on him, talking about him. But, you know, he is a key ingredient in both of those movies. And his 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 character in this one is so... Like, it's just, like, you buy it. Yeah, and but, he asked to not be mentioned in the opening credits so yeah. that no one would know no. that he's the killer. Yeah, it's just... It's such a, oh, it's a visceral movie. It does borrow some from The Exorcist 3 is an argument that I have made. The Exorcist 3, which I contend is, I think, to me, the, the greatest psychological horror movie ever made. Um, uh, much like in 7, The Exorcist 3, you really don't see the killings. They're, they're yeah. described after the fact. And that is really, really important because our imagination is often far worse than than the reality, the, the the things that we can conjure up in our mind. Yeah, and so you know, Exorcist three kind of invents that, and seven takes it to a completely uh, to a completely new level of just terror. And uh, I, again, uh, just to circle back to what I said at the beginning of of talking about this movie, I left the theater visibly visibly shook and needed a few days to get over what I had seen. Because oh, at 17 years old, I wasn't ready to process it. Oh, no. And still, like, I, I rewatched this again last night. And the last 10 minutes, even knowing what's coming, I'm literally sitting there, like, on the edge of my seat, just going, I know it's coming, but I, I'm, not, I'm not ready for it. You still I'm not ready for it. You still want to believe that there's nothing in the box. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing in the box. And we're and we're going to keep that spoiler free. We're not going to say what's in the box if you've never seen it. But that is the most famous line and yeah. one that I think we still use to this day. What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> so that's a great movie. Now talk about the numbers because this was a huge hit. So huge. Here's, here's what I love. Seven seventh grossing film of 1995. Um. $33 million budget yeah, okay. grosses $327 million. That's, that, that's not even that's, a hit. That's a phenomenon. Yeah. And it, it really was. And what I will say is what I've read is David Fincher was given was supposed to be given a revised script from Andrew Walker's original script. And it was accidentally given the original where there is the box scene. Okay. Um, both David Fincher and Brad Pitt fought to keep that scene in, whereas the studio did not want it whatsoever. That's right. We'd have to have a happy ending. You, you, yeah, you, we don't. We don't want discord at the end of the movie. We want everything to be resolved, and you know, everyone walking out going, "Wow, what a great film that was!" Instead, they fought to keep this dark and gritty, and that is what makes this. If this had ended with a, you know, just a happy-go-lucky scene, it would not have the impact of what it had. Well said, and I agree. I agree with you. All right, so Jason, we are on to the last movie we're going to talk about for this episode, episode one of the 101 movies from the 90s that we recommend, and we are going to stay in the year 1995. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we are going to go with a movie that's going to introduce a lot of things, okay? It's going to introduce a director um, 
who love him or hate him, <laughs> is one of the most financially successful directors yeah. of the past 27 years now. One that I will see his films the day they come out. Um, and that is uh, Michael Bay making his directorial debut with 1995's Bad Boys. What you gonna do? Bad Boys is a 1995 American buddy cop action comedy film directed by Michael Bay in his first feature directorial debut. Produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the film stars Martin Lawrence and Will Smith as two Miami narcotics detectives, Marcus Burnett and Mike Lowry. The film received mixed reviews from critics and was commercially successful and gained a strong cult following. It spawned two sequels, Bad Boys 2 in 2003 and Bad Boys for Life in 2020. I tell you that this movie stars Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. For the uninitiated, you'd be like, oh, fuck, well, Will Smith is king of Hollywood in the 90s. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. The bigger name at the time was Martin Lawrence. It was Martin Lawrence, yeah. Hands down. In fact, the movie gets the budget that it gets. Simpson and Bruckheimer pony up the money, get this, get the, you know, because you've got a unproven director. Yeah. Okay. You're going to get Martin Lawrence on board. Then they're, the movie's going to get made because Will Smith was, you know, he was the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. He had been in Six Degrees of Separation. He'd been in a, you know, a couple, a couple movies, but he wasn't the bankable star. This, this kicks off Michael Bay's career. It kicks off will smith's career yeah and martin lawrence does have a string of movies that come out over the next 10 years that are modestly successful but yeah. nothing on this level i it's saw that yeah it's his peak and everyone else's exactly kickoff yeah. point yeah. yeah and the movie comes out in uh august of or excuse me april of 95 i see it the weekend it comes out in the theater and was blown out of the theater i had not seen this type of stylized action in a film before and the components that he put together from the editing to the practical effects to the musical score, which I think is phenomenal in this film, to the comedy. I, I will say this about most Michael Bay movies, um, especially Bad Boys 2. Let's see. Just double check here. The, the, the running time on this one is two hours. The running time on Bad Boys 2 is two hours and 20 minutes. His movie's are a little longer than they need to be. And yeah. that's kind of the case with every Michael Bay movie. But I rewatched this one on Saturday and you know what? It still holds up. It does. It still holds up. And I, I'll, I'll say, um, I didn't see this one until probably five years after it came out. Oh, I, really? I, I really don't know why. Really? That's interesting. Um, I, 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 I wish I could come up with something some good reason why i just i remember I remember it came out in the theaters and i went huh it's like lethal weapon kind of movie but i never really heard anything good or bad about it and i remember catching it just one random day on a blockbuster and going all right well i never saw bad boys and i loved it it's so good it is so good it's 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 so and it does it i think that my last rewatching was probably Maybe two, three years ago, and it still holds up. It's it's it really, really it's really it's real done. Yeah. It it and you can see, like there are 
uh, stereotypical Michael Bay or cliche Michael <clears throat> Bay shots in this movie, which yeah. you see in every Michael Bay movie, which he was doing for the first time. It's $105,000, and this happens to be one of the fastest production cars on the planet. Zero to 16 four seconds, sweetie. This is a limited edition. You damn right it's limited. No cup holder, no back seat. Just a shiny dick with two chairs in it. I guess we the balls just dragging the fuck along. Oh, damn. Get it. If you see, I can't get down there. You got an engineering floor up in here. My shit ain't going down up in there. Go. Titty, titty, strutty, strutty. Good morning. Good morning. You know what? I ain't your wife to be cleaning up after your little filthy You watch my hand, okay? My shit can't get down there. And when it does, it gets stuck. Now, what do you come up with? You got this shit. Nah, you gonna get that fry. Look out, this ain't no ass. goddamn Denny's or eating in my... I wouldn't be buying no shit from Denny's anyway. I don't like the way we've been treated. This bitch, eh? Let's gank these dudes. Yeah, you ain't interested in the damn fry. You all up in that. Get out of the car, man. Shit. The fuck? Me and my team, we've had a big week. So just get the fuck out of the car. Damn. What do you win? 350 I bet you a big Popeye chicken eating motherfucker, ain't you? Hey, hey, I always got to get the big, thick motherfuckers. The car now! Alright, 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 okay? Split your wheel. Alright, hold on. Now, now, this is some funny Shut shit. Up. Let me tell you how bad a day you're having. Right now, you're jacking a couple cops. Oh, yeah, well, I'm a stand up comedian. And I suck! That's why I need your car. Hey, look, now, I ain't no Wesley Snipes. I just hang out with stupid ass friends and drive stupid ass cars that attract a lot of motherfucking attention. You know what? I need to jump over this car and smack you in your peasy ass head. That's what I need to do. Bro, you know what? You're arguing over motherfucking it's French fries. It's not about the French fries. It's about your lack of respect for other people's property. Hey, 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 hey. Shut the fuck up. That shit is Shut stupid. Shut up, Hold the fuck on. All right, now, if you want something bad enough, come get some. Bad enough, come get some. You like that shit? Wesley Snipes. Passenger 57. Now give me a motherfucking handy wipe. <laughs> and, and like David Fincher, he did come up as a music video director. I didn't realize that. And okay. uh, the, I guess I, I can tell this story on uh, on the Patreon. Thanks. It's not going out to the public. So, <laughs> so um, you know, Michael Bay's uh, studio, Platinum Dunes. They they mm-hmm. do the uh, they do the horror movies. All the so, remakes. Yeah. So, believe it or not, my friend Phil Juano was hired to direct. The Nightmare on Elm Street remake that I came hang out. out with that guy sometimes. He, he's cool as fuck, man. You love him, <laughs> but he was hired to direct the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Yeah. And I can never talk about this on the regular podcast, so I keep this Patreon only. Yeah. Um. So, which amazingly, like we've talked about the the remake and all that stuff, and uh, and so Phil was like doing post production. You know, he's he's get, he's at the casting and all this stuff. Um. About a month before they were going to start principal photography on the film. Michael Bay, who serves as one of the producers, um, his good friend Samuel Bear, who directed Nirvana's Smell of like Teen Shut Spirit, tells, tells Michael, I, I want, I'm ready to direct my first feature film. What do you have? And Michael's like, well, the only thing I've got going on right now is this Elm Street remake. And he's like, oh, I'd love to do that. So fucking Phil gets fired off of the no production. Way. And Michael Bay puts Samuel Bear as the director. And apparently... You know, 
Phil's buddy was the director of photography in uh, the movie, and he said that was abundantly clear that Samuel Bear had had never, never directed like, a movie. Fuck, like they would shoot one scene. All right, moving on to the next one, and the director of photography is like, uh, "Yeah, we have to shoot that from like six different angles, and you don't have a shot of them going through the door." And it's like, <laughs> and it was like, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, but but that's the kind of power Michael Bay has now. But he yeah. always took care of his vi- music video buddies. Wow. They were all they were all, they all came up together. Huh. That's crazy. That being said, I'm a sucker for Michael Bay movies. I, I really am. I know you are. And we've we've gone through this before and you know, talking like, about point break and LA being the bank robbery capital of the world and just watching ambulance. I just Which I have watched a couple times. Uh, I I am a Michael Bay um lover and hater. Right. So it depends on the movie. I love him and I hate him. And overall, I love him for what he does and what he brings. But Michael Bay will do now putting the Transformers movies. That's what I was going to say. Put put those aside. Yeah. Looking at his other movies. I I like to think that he's kind of like Christopher Nolan in a sense that if he can do it in camera, he'll do it in camera. Yes. You know, obviously can't do that with the Transformer movies. But I guess real quick uh, before we wrap up. Bad Boys 2 and Bad Boys for Life. Your thoughts? Um, Bad Boys 2, good. Yeah. Has some pretty wild scenes, and it's too yeah. long. It's, it's it's literally 40 minutes longer than it needs to be. Yeah. Um, that's all I'll, I'll say on that. Okay. <laughs> I, Bad Boys for Life? No. No. I... Not, was not digging no. them. I, I, you know what? When I was watching Bad Boys for Life, it became abundantly clear to me. Like by the end of the movie, they're trying to turn this into a Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. That's what happened. That's where the downfall started with the Lethal Weapons, because this is basically Lethal Weapon in Miami. Yeah. yeah. And um, the where Lethal Weapon 3 worked was they introduced a whole other subsect of characters yeah. that you love. You know, the Danny DeVito and the Rene Russo and um, the Joe Pesci. The jo- yeah. Um, why did I say Danny DeVito? I meant Joe Pesci. Yeah. Two, two small guys. So. <laughs> um, they fuck you at the drive-thru. <laughs> they fuck you at the drive-thru. Um, that, that's it. Like, it, it didn't. It's, they, sh- they should have stopped it too. I'll just say this. Michael Bay didn't direct Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. And it showed. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Like, I didn't think it was an awful movie, but I didn't, it, it wasn't, you can tell when Michael Bay makes a movie. Yeah. You can and tell. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure it led to Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. I it's, think. it's possible. Yeah. That, but that's what happened. To circle back to <laughs> at least the original Bad Boys from 95 and Bad Boys 2 in uh, 2003. The fact of the matter is one of the best things about those two movies is the the uh, the uh, the rapport that yeah. Martin Lawrence and Will Smith has. So good. Like the, the, the chemistry that yeah. they have is so good right from that opening scene in bad boys when they're in his car when they're in his porsche and he's like martin lawrence is eating the burger he's like hey you can't be in here he's like i'm not getting my sex at home and he drops a fry you're gonna get that he goes i can't get shit and come up with a hook you know it's it's fucking it's great it's great so all right the uh the numbers on that yes so from what i saw 19 million dollars in production yeah 
$141 million box office. That is enough to light I mean, the fuse for Michael Bay and Will Smith's career. Because the yep, next year, there you go. Will Smith's going to do Independence Day. Hello. And then he's going to be the king of 4th of July for a few years until he get, until he, uh, until he stars in a John Peters-produced movie <laughs> that had to have a giant mechanical spider in it. Uh, and that is, uh, that is Wild Wild West, a Wild movie that Wild I, West? I cannot imagine is going to make the list of 101 movies we're going to recommend no, in the 1990s. Maybe 100 best songs. But there may yeah. be some more Will Smith movies. There might be. There was definitely going to be a couple more Tony Scott movies on yep. here. So... Well, this was fun, Jason. This was good. So we, uh, yeah, good kickoff. We got through numbers 101 through 92. So on the next episode, we'll be kicking off with uh, number 91. And for you guys listening again, thank you so much for, for being a supporter of this podcast. Absolutely. It means thank you. Everything to us. And uh, we're always open to ideas. If there's a, if there's a particular movie or franchise you want us to cover, you know, let us know in the comments. Send us an email, the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And uh, I don't have to say follow us on Twitter and all that stuff because you are following us on Patreon, and that means everything to us. So, Jason, until next time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.